I'm looking forward to preaching. It's been a little while since I preached, you know. And uh, John chapter 8 is where we will be today, John chapter 8. Um, I'll be saying more about the, uh, the trip in the 130 service. Uh, we're going to be going through photos, stories, a lot deeper explanation of the trip. But I just want to say that as uh, I went, I was very pleased and very proud of our missionaries. They are working very hard. They are, um, you know, serving the Lord where they are. And most of you know who they are and what they're doing. But just to be clear, uh, Lloyd is a single man and he is focused on translating the Bible into uh, the Loa dialect. Todd and Rachel, they are focused on church planting. And, you know, the things that we sometimes take for granted um, are not very available there. For the Loa people, they have no scripture, none at all. There's no one in that dialect who can read the Bible in their own language. And um, there are a few uh, Baptist churches in the valley there, the Kathmandu Valley. I don't know the precise number. I think uh, maybe around eight to ten churches in a city of five million. Um, less than, I think it's less than three percent even names the name of Christianity at all in the nation. And that includes Catholics, Mormons, JWs, of every sort and stripe. And probably the largest number of that is a Pentecostal variety, um, and a Pentecostal variety that does not preach a true gospel. So um, we, being there, we got to see a whole lot of things. We got to see the, some of the religious observances of the Hindu and of the Buddhist people, and um, just very sad. Uh, we also got to visit both of the churches that Lloyd and Todd attend. And it, there was a sweet um, love amongst the people. Um, Todd's church had about 50 folks altogether. Lloyd's church had about uh, 20, 25. And so, um, you know, God is doing a good work there. It is a place with a lot of challenges. And I'll talk about some of those in the, in the next service. One of the conversations I had with Lloyd's pastor was about all the missionaries that he had seen come and go. And uh, he said, um, probably over 90% of the missionaries don't make it past 10 years there. And so as we pray for Lloyd, as we pray for Todd and Rachel, we want to ask God to give them grace to serve there long term. And I know that's their goal. That's their desire as well. So we're in John chapter 8 today. And we're, Lord willing, going to be finishing. This is one of the longest chapters in the book of John. Um, I think chapter 6 is a little bit longer. But let's stand to our feet for the reading. We're going to read verse 48 to 58. And I know it's been a few weeks. You've heard some other preachers. Um, but we'll read the text and give a little background to bring us up to speed. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. And the Bible says, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges, Truly, truly, I say to you, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never taste of death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. 
of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let's have prayer together. Uh, Jeremiah Kagan, would you pray, please? Amen. Please be seated. Well, to bring us up to speed, this is a big argument that's going on. Jesus is embroiled in an argument. And let me just say about arguments that sometimes it's easier to start an argument than it is to finish one. Sometimes you kind of get started without trying, or maybe you go in intentionally kind of with a problem to, to fix, but it's a little easier to start an argument than it is to finish it. But when you're arguing with your sibling, that's one thing. You know, sometimes we argue as children or we argue with those who are children. And, you know, there's a certain level of, of uh, advantage that you have when you're an adult arguing with a child. But there are some people who actually argue for a living, um, depending on which uh, realm of, of work you want to pick. But one that definitely jumps into my mind is the lawyer. The lawyer argues for a living, and he goes up in front of people, and he argues about the law and about the facts and about the case, and, and his whole life is built up in arguing. And there's some lawyers that are really good at arguments, and they do really well, and I guess apparently there's some who don't do well. Uh, but when you're arguing against someone who knows what they're doing, you, you have a big task ahead of you. And uh, a high-paid lawyer, a highly trained lawyer is very skilled but in the passage we're reading here, we're, we're watching people argue with Jesus, the Son of God. And when you go up and argue against Jesus, the Son of God, whether you understand this or not, the fact is you're going to lose. You're going to lose that argument. And Jesus does win the argument, and so I've entitled the message today, Jesus Wins the Argument. I could have also just said Jesus Ends the Argument. Um, he certainly did win. We acknowledge that. And yet I don't think the people who lost admitted that they lost the argument. And Jesus here is going back and forth, and really they, they kind of come after him. And in the prior uh, sermons that we've worked through the, the text, Jesus has been teaching them, and he's been laying out some truth, and they come on the attack. And so he tells them that, uh, that he is the source of truth, that he is the one that can free them. And they say, oh, we don't need to be freed. We don't need to be freed from anyone. We've never been in bondage. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, um, he brings up his father, and they immediately claim their father, and there's a big discussion about who has God as their father and who has Abraham as their father. And they've really argued about this a great deal. And at the crux of the matter is they don't like who Jesus claims that he is. They don't like what he says. They don't like what he uh, asserts. They don't like what he's saying, and he says, you're in bondage, you need me to free you. And they're like, oh, no, we don't. And then he says, God is not your father, God is my father. And they say, oh, no, God's our father. And you can see this argument lay, you know, kind of developing through, through the text. 
And then they, they start to get into the insults category. They say, you're born of fornication, and you're a, possessed of a demon. And, you know, one, one thing you notice if you hear people arguing sometimes is when someone is truly starting to lose the argument, they, they just shift to insults, right? You're an idiot. You're a moron or whatever they might say. And uh, what that shows is that they don't really have some facts. They're just kind of mad at the person. And that has developed numerous times, and it's going to be shown again in the text. So as we pick up verse 48, we see the continuing of insults. Verse 48 Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I call this double trouble. This is insult upon insult. They are are throwing stones at Jesus. Earlier they had said, "We, we are not born of fornication. But now they go a little further, and now they say, you are a Samaritan. And see, just to say that Jesus is born of fornication is kind of insinuating that Joseph and Mary had physical relations and Jesus was a normal product of of that, just like any other human, that when they were not married, when they were not fully married and, and, uh, you know, uh, permitted to do that sort of thing. So they say, we're not born of fornication, but now the, the insult goes deeper because they say you're a Samaritan. Well, who's the Samaritan? A Samaritan is someone who is part Jewish and part Gentile. And so now they're asserting that Jesus' mother... The, the, the mother Mary, that she committed fornication with a Gentile and that Jesus was a product of that fornication. They say, we are not a Samaritan. So they're throwing out these terms, these derogatory terms upon Jesus. And uh, they also say that you have a demon. You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. They're throwing everything in the book at Jesus. They're insulting him in every way they know. And this demonic charge is not new. Uh, This has been used numerous times in Jesus' ministry. Mark 3, uh, the scribes say he has Beelzebub and he casts out demons by the prince of demons, Mark 3, 22. And there's several other places. I believe in chapter 10 in John we run into it again. You're demon-possessed. You have a demon. You are a Samaritan. And what that is saying to the crowds is don't listen to this guy. He's crazy, he's messed up, he has a horrible heritage, he's not a true Jew, you don't want to learn from someone who's not a true Jew, and you don't want to learn from someone demon-possessed, so just ignore Jesus. They're trying to throw insults upon Christ. You know, the insulting of Jesus has not stopped. There are people today that still throw insults upon Jesus. They make claims about his birth, they make claims about who he was and who he wasn't, and he was crazy, he was this, he was that. And even today we hear people throwing insults at Jesus. Um, Sadly, many people, many children, hear the name of Jesus more as a curse word than they do in in Bible story or in in church or in prayer. They hear the name of Christ as an insult. And so this type of thing still goes on today. But Jesus responds to these insults in verse 49 and 50. And I call this the confidence of the Father. If you could move us up there to verse 49 and 50, the confidence of the Father. The Bible says, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. I love this because what's happening in the passage is Jesus is not uh, scared. He is not pushed. He's not uh, trembling because of these insulting attacks. 
You know, you and I, when we are insulted, sometimes it's hard for us to kind of bear up under that. Sometimes we get offended. Sometimes we get hurt. Uh, whatever our response would be. But Jesus, he responds to them in this, this strong, stone-cold confidence where he just says to them, look, uh, I don't have a demon. You, uh, uh, I honor the Lord, my Father, but you are dishonoring me. And then he says, I don't seek my own glory. But there is one who seeks and one who judges. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, there is one who's above us all who judges these things, who knows these things, who seeks out the truth, if you will, and uh, I will rest in his judgment. I will be confident in his uh, analysis of me. And you know, there's a real lesson there for us as believers, and that is when we hear the voices of insult, of accusation, of the world, whatever they may be against us, we need to remember there is a God in heaven who looks down upon our life and he knows the truth, he judges truly, he judges rightly, and uh, he will determine what is right and wrong, and he will determine whether we are a success or a failure, right? And uh, as Christians, we need to let the voice of God be stronger in our heart and our life than those other voices. Satan wants to speak voices of accusation and of doubt and of fear and of insult to us, but Jesus says, I know who seeks the truth. I know who judges rightly, and therefore I'm not moved. I'm not worried by what you have to say. And uh, there are some words that come into this ear on this side, and we really, by the grace of God, just have to let them go right on through and out the other side. I don't know what's been spoken to you this week. I don't know what sort of things you've had to hear or things that have been pushed upon you, but take some comfort in this. There is one who seeks and judges, and that is God. And let his judgment be stronger in your heart than anything else. Moving on to verse 51. Jesus now says, I see here the conquering of death because Jesus moves beyond just their insults and he brings them back to the broader truth. And this is a truth he's brought up before in the passage about death. Verse 51. Truly, truly I say to you, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. I love this verse. Jesus pivots from all the other things and he says if someone will keep my saying if they'll receive it if they'll embrace it for themselves they're never going to see death now this is a huge claim this is not something that anyone can say but Jesus says this and he says it boldly and I just see here the conquering of death Jesus asserts himself as the answer the antidote the solution the resolution to death remember look back at verse 37 Verse 37 says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. This, these people have been trying to kill Jesus. They have been plotting and working to kill him. Move even further back to verse 28. Then said Jesus to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he. Well, that when you have lifted up the Son of Man means when you have crucified the Son of Man. That phrase, lifted up, is not just generic, it's, it's very specific. It's a reference to his crucifixion. And so Jesus asserts that they will win, so to speak, they will crucify him. So Jesus even spoke in this passage of his own death. So they were trying to kill him. In verse 28, he asserts that they will succeed, he will be crucified. But notice also verse 24, and this is much more pertinent to them specifically. Verse 24, therefore I said to you, that you shall die in your sins. 
For if you do not believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Jesus in the passage had told them about their death and that without him they would die in their sins. So death has been all throughout the passage. And here in verse 51 he says, if a man will keep my saying, if a man will believe on me, then guess what? He will never see death. This is the man who's already admitted he's going to die. This is the man who has said, you're trying to kill me. This is the man who's talked to them about their death. But now he says if a person believes in him, they will not see death. Again, we see that Jesus, his boldness is clear that he's, he's making a claim that's high above the rabbis. The rabbis didn't say things like this. The rabbis didn't say, I'm the answer to death. No one would say things like that. Jesus is making these supreme and these high and these bold claims. And what's happening is, that what, what is their answer? Their only answer to this kind of talk is, oh, you must have a demon. Oh, you're a Samaritan. You're, you're an awful person, right? They don't have an answer that really comes anywhere close to what Jesus is asserting. And the reason they can't answer it is because they were just like you and I, normal, finite human beings, and Jesus, the Son of God, is saying, I am the answer to death. I am the solution to beyond the grave. Now remember, uh, when he says you shall not see death, um, there's a couple ways we can think of this. And one is that Jesus, or John, excuse me, when John uses the word death, a lot of times he doesn't think of it like we do as an event. We think of death as an event, like the moment in time when someone passes, when their soul separates. We think of that as the moment of death. But John often refers to death as a, uh, as a, uh, a state, as an existence, as a place of being, right? And, and it's not just a momentary thing, but it's where you reside after the moment of death, as we think of it. Death is where you continue on in. You continue in death. And ultimately, the Bible teaches us that, that physical death is a separation of the soul from, from the body, but spiritual death is that separation of that soul from God. And so Jesus says, if a man hold to my sayings, if he believe my sayings, he will never see death. Well, Jesus is not teaching that you and I will not die, and in a moment we're going to see that they bring that up. They say, well, Abraham died, and these other prophets died, so who do you think you are? Right? So they're thinking in the momentary sense. They're thinking of that dying in that moment where the soul separates from the body. So that's one way we can understand this is Jesus is just saying, you're not going to enter into death. You're not going to experience that state of separated from God because you've trusted in me. And the Bible elsewhere makes this abundantly clear. Those who have trusted Christ, their soul will never be separate from the Lord. Do you know the, the sense and that knowledge and that freedom we have when we have the Holy Spirit in us? That awareness that we are the Lord's and that we're His children and, and that Holy Spirit lives within. As, if you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. I, I tell you today with great joy, that will never, ever leave you. And even that moment where your soul separates from your body and that moment you experience death physically you will never experience separation from the Holy Spirit of God. 
Because the Bible says that Jesus himself said uh, that he told the man, uh, the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? That's immediate. There's no interim, there's no drifting around today. Paul said it in his writings. He said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no separation from God that ever takes place for the child of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth. And if you're here today and you don't know about your your soul's condition, you don't know if you're ready to meet the Lord, you don't know if if when you die that your soul will go to be with the Lord, let me just say that this passage gives the answer in the most simple of terms, and that is that Jesus is the one who rescues us from this eternal death. He is the answer, and that's what he's teaching the people. He says, if a man will keep my sayings, if he'll, he'll embrace what I am saying, if he'll agree, if he'll believe, if he'll receive, then he'll never see death. Now, the other way I want to think about this is that if we apply this to the idea of death at the moment we, we die, um, there's a lot of fear surrounding death, right? And just because a person is saved does not mean that there will not be suffering leading up to the point of death. Now, we like to think, we, sometimes maybe in your mind, you, you think, boy, I hope I go quick, you know, I hope it's a, you know, one of those sort of things. And sometimes that's how it works for some people. They go very quickly. Others, the moments leading up to their death is very uh, painful. And there is suffering. And even for the child of God, sometimes that is the case. But I want to urge us about the moment of death. That according to what Jesus says here, if we understand this to refer to that, the time where the soul separates the body, what this means, I believe, is that at the moment of death, we will not, that the very moment of death, that we will not fear. That we won't be overcome by death, but rather that Jesus will overcome death for us. And that that moment of passing will not be the awful thing that people think it is. You know, can I remind you that there are some beautiful and glorious stories of saints of God where at the moment of their death, somehow through the Spirit, through however God works, they they saw the other side. They saw the Lord. They saw heaven. They saw the glories. They saw light, whatever it is. And instead of seeing awfulness or seeing what they're leaving behind, at the moment of death, these saints of God are seeing what is, what is beyond. And they're not seeing death, they're seeing the glories of heaven. And Jesus says, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. This is, this is beautiful and important truth for us. And can I just remind us that a theology of dying is very important for the child of God. It's very important because... I believe our light shines brightest sometimes as Christians when we approach death in faith and in remembrance of all that Jesus has taught us about death. Because the world approaches death with great fear and with great confusion and with no hope and with no understanding. And um, I'll just share a quick story. One of my, my best man in my wedding, his mother passed away about two or three years ago from pancreatic cancer. And she um, had, a, had a very good testimony. She walked with God. She loved the Lord. And so the doctor had, uh, they had had trouble getting this diagnosed. Uh, her daughter was taking her, and this doctor wasn't giving an answer, so they go to this doctor, and they knew something was, was very wrong. And so they finally found a doctor that figured out what it was. And so the doctor sat them down and gave them the diagnosis. I believe the doctor was a woman. And, and she looked at, um, at Mrs. Stewart, 
And she told her that um, you have pancreatic cancer and 95% um, of people are dead within a year from this cancer. And Mrs. Stewart just said, okay. And I don't know the exact words and everything, but, but the doctor said, maybe you didn't hear me. Um, I, let me explain again. And she explained again, and Mrs. Stewart just said, it, it'll be okay. And she said, well, what, what do you mean? And, and she said, I have the Lord as my Savior. I've lived my life for the Lord, and so I'm, if, if God determines it's my time to go, then I am content with that. In that moment, she had a theology of death. And not just an out there, on paper sort of theology. No, she had a theology in her heart that when it came to the moment of death, she knew that the Lord would be with her, that God's will would be done, and that his li her life was in His hands. And what, what a shining light this was to this doctor. And um, I think there's truth that was in the Scripture about death that had led her and prepared her. And when this time came, God gave her the grace to approach death with that open hand as she did. Let's keep moving. Verse 52 says, um, and, and here again they bring up Abraham, and so I call this uh, the comparison to Abraham. Verse 52, verse 53. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If a man keeps my saying, he shall never taste of death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be. So immediately they, they, thinking through their frame of mind, they immediately go, Jesus says, if a man trusts me and keep my saying, he'll never see death. And then they say, well, Abraham is dead. And so how do these two things work together, right? Very logical. But they say, hold on a minute, Abraham died. He saw death. He tasted death. He went through death. And again, they're thinking of that moment of where the soul leaves the body. And they say, and you say, if a man trusts me that he'll never see death. So in a way, it's a very legitimate question, but I love how they bring it around to the real crux of the matter. The real crux of the matter is that final question, that very end of verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? They ask, are you greater? Who are you saying you are? And this is getting down to the heart of the matter. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? And these Jews have exalted Abraham and they loved Abraham and they looked to Abraham and they'd exalted Moses and they looked to Moses and they followed Moses. And Jesus comes along and starts saying things, these huge claims and these massive statements and these uh, things that they just are not embracing. And they say, who are you? Who are you? Are you greater than Abraham? And here we sit 2,000 years later and we shout, yes! Yes, he is greater than Abraham. And that's the crux of the matter. That's the whole point. Jesus is greater than Abraham. But they compare to Abraham, and in their mind, it's an obvious, oh, if Abraham's here, Jesus has to be here. He has to be lower than Abraham. And if I could just remind us that many of the people around us hold Jesus to be lesser than. If they believe in Jesus at all for the average person, it's he was a good guy, he's a nice man, he did some good things. They don't hold Jesus as we do, or as I hope we do, to be the Son of God, the Supreme, the Lord of all, the King of the, of the earth, and the, uh, the Savior of the world. 
And when you see him high and lifted up and in his rightful place, of course, all else then comes underneath. But for these Jews, it's very different. It's Abraham is here, and so you have to be down here somewhere. And today, uh, people take that same approach to Jesus, and they have to bring him down and normalize him and make him just an ordinary human being. The question, I think, for us is, will we really hold him up for who he really is in our hearts? Because when we remember who Jesus is, you know, as I think of the, the song service we sang today, almost, I think every song talked about salvation or grace, right? And even your, even your um, I don't believe that was coordinated, was it? Um, and so the grace of God is being emphasized in this message. And when we think of what God has done for us, that he has saved us, that he has rescued us, that he's given us all these privileges and this home in heaven and this fact that we don't have to see death and all these different pieces that God has given us, we see a God who is good, who is worthy to be praised, who's worthy to be yielded to and loved and served, right? And when we hold up the Lord for who he really is, it so clarifies our life. It simplifies our life. It, it helps us to see reality. But you know what happens over time? Satan and the world and our flesh and all these different things, they seek to pull Jesus down to make him just another little piece of life or another human that we treat like another. And what that does then is that really muddles things and it really confuses things. And, and that's when, as Christians, we get all tied up in knots and we get torn in all these different directions. And, and Jesus is laying it out here. He's saying, uh, this is who I am. And he's getting right to it. Um, but this is why there's such conflict. These Jews just cannot take that. For us, his children, it should be very different. As we've received him, we must let this truth lead us and guide us in our life. So verse 54, the clarity regarding his father. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. You say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I know him and keep his saying. This is clarity, verse 54 and verse 55. Jesus is saying some cut and dry things. He's, he's drawing the line. And well, you know, we were talking about Jesus arguing. And one thing about Jesus is when he argues, he never, ever, ever cuts corners on the truth because he is the truth. Jesus can't lie. He doesn't lie. As he says here in the text, I'm not going to lie. And so as he's arguing with them, he's laying it out. And he says, I know God the Father. You don't know God the Father. And he lays it out. I mean, and this has to be so offensive to their ears. I mean, they have to be like crying. Ah! You know, I think their heads are exploding at this moment. What do you mean we don't know God? What do you mean, you, you know, he's your father, but he's not ours and all of this. And, and Jesus is just being very direct with them. And he's being very clear. And as believers, we need to be a people full of grace, but also full of truth. And there's something to be said, especially in our day, I think, where there's so much, you know, uh, swirl and kind of, well, that's what you feel is your truth and all those sort of things. When as believers, when we just declare truth and we're willing to boldly yet kindly speak truth, it, it kind of cuts through things and it, and it lays bare reality and it points to the word and to the Lord when we simply speak the truth. And Jesus did that here. He didn't hold anything back. Verse 56, we see the contrast by Abraham. This is really something. Look at verse 56. Your father 
Abraham, rejoice to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. If you've worked up through the passage and you remember some of the other messages, Jesus has gone back and forth about Abraham being their father. And at first he said that he was not their father because he was trying to kill, they were trying to kill Jesus. And he said, that's not Abraham's action, so you're not the father. Abraham is not your father. But then later he does admit that you are the descendants of Abraham. In the DNA sense, they were the descendants of Abraham. Spiritually and in his attitude and actions, they were not the children of Abraham because Abraham believed God and they did not believe God. So there's kind of a, a distinction being made between spiritual and attitude connection to Abraham versus the DNA physical connection. Here he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I just want to pause on this for a minute. Abraham was happy about Jesus. And I don't know precisely when or how Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. I don't know if it was in his human existence or after he died and he saw what God would do. I don't know all the details. But the fact is this. And they don't get this because in the next verse they say, have you seen Abraham? And it's like, no, 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 no. They're getting it backwards. And what I mean is this. They, they say, have you seen Abraham? Well, yes, Jesus has seen Abraham. But the point is not if Jesus had seen Abraham. The point is if Abraham had seen Jesus. That's the emphasis here. That's the emphasis. And Jesus says, Abraham saw me. He looked at me. And he was happy about it. Meanwhile, the Jews, demon, Samaritan, right? What a contrast. And that's what Jesus is bringing out, is you got Abraham, and you got his attitude towards Jesus, and you got these guys, and, they're, and there is no comparison between the two. Abraham looks at Jesus, and he rejoices. He was glad, and he said, there's my Savior. There's the one who paid for my sins, or will pay for my sins. And, and Abraham saw the day of Christ, and he was glad about it. You know, as we live in 2023, we too see the day of Jesus. And we have a day we look forward to. We have a day we look backward to. And when we gather on Sundays, we gather looking backwards to the cross, looking backwards to the empty tomb. We see the day of Christ, and what do we do? We rejoice. Just like Abraham rejoiced. We look at the day of Christ and we rejoice. So too, just as Abraham had to look forward, we too look forward to the day where Christ comes to earth. And what do we do? We rejoice. We look forward to that. We have anticipation about that day. And so Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. Verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Um, I don't know where they pull this 50 years out of, uh, but this is verse, uh, if you could bring us up to verse 57. Um, he, he's, they say, you're, you're, uh, you're not even 50, have you seen Abraham? So again, they're still thinking in these terms of Jesus seeing Abraham and not Abraham seeing Jesus. And they use 50, and, and I, I don't know for sure, but my guess about this is that 50 was an age where you were considered to be an older person. Um, so, for instance, the priests, uh, when a Levite, would, well, when any Jewish male turned 13, they would move from boyhood to manhood. And 13 was like an age where they would do some things, and you, you became a man, right? 13. Well, at, at, for the priests and the Levites, at age 30, 
you began serving as a priest. So you did training and preparation from 13 to 30. They would be taught the law and taught how to serve, and there was preparation and training. But then at age 30, you would begin ministering in the temple, and you begin taking care of the things, and the different Levitical jobs would all, be, would all happen at age 30. Interestingly enough, Jesus started his ministry around the age of 30. Okay? But then a priest would serve from 30 to 50 in that, that role as priest, but then at age 50, he would transition to mentoring the next generation. And he would be the older, wiser one that would teach and that would train and would bring along the others behind them. So they say to him, you're not even 50 years old. You're not, you haven't even reached like the older man status here, like the respected teacher status of the older generation. And have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50. And Jesus answers their question. I love his answer. Verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, when we read that in English, and we first hear that, it sort of kind of registers a little funny. Because normally you might think that he would say, I was before Abraham, right? Instead of I am. But when his use of these terms, I am, is very intentional. And it's built up with Old Testament significance that these Jews knew and understood. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 3.14, God told Moses his name. And when he told Moses his name, this is how he said it to him. And God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And then he goes on to say, and he said, you shall say this to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's Exodus 3.14. And this term, I am, is, uh, is a rich term for God. It's a name for God. And it speaks of him being self-existent, meaning he always exists. So as a, as a human, we, we say there was a time when I was not, and then I was, when I was conceived, and when I was born, then I became, right? And then we are while we live, and then we're not when we die, right? We have a beginning, a life, and an ending. Whereas when God speaks, he doesn't say I was or I will be. He says I am. And that is this concept that he always is. He always has been. He always is. He always will be. And he is ever existent, always existing. And so Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And he's telling them, I'm God. Jesus is using the divine name for himself. And there are some people who claim that they read the Bible and they say, Jesus nowhere claimed to be God. False. Right here is one. Very clear. Very clear. You say, how clear is it really? I mean, I am. I mean, maybe he just misspoke. Maybe he just... Well, one reason we know it's really clear is all the Jews picked up stones to kill him. They all understood what Jesus was saying. They considered it blasphemy. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And what he's saying is not just... Um, answering this question about did you see Abraham and did Abraham see you? He's answering this question of are you greater than Abraham? And the answer is yes. A thousand times yes. He's greater than Abraham. The Jews take up stones. And you know what this means? Yes, they're very mad. They, they call this blasphemy. But it also means they've lost the argument. Because they have nothing else to say except die. 
they've, they've lost the argument. And the argument ends because they go to get stones. Now, a quick thought here. They're in the temple, but there were portions of the temple still being built at this time, still being worked on. Uh, There's many years it was worked on. It was not complete in Jesus' day. And so there would have been stones in the general vicinity. They may have had to run to get some. So they're running to get stones. They're bringing the stones. Jesus is making his exit. And with the grace of God, and I don't know how miraculous it was or if he was just stealthy in a human sense, but either way, he uh, exited, and there they sit with their stones and know Jesus the stone. What a great ending to John 8, um, especially when you read through it and you see how it all builds to this moment. We as Christians today do not struggle, I don't think, with the temptation to hold Abraham above Jesus. Our temptation is more subtle. And our temptation is that we, we hold Jesus up as number one, uh, kind of categorically and in our thoughts, perhaps. But sometimes in the way we live out our life, he is not number one. And the most often human that we exalt above Jesus is ourself. That is the human that we're most easily tempted to lift above Jesus. And we sometimes uh, give inordinate attention to ourselves and uh, a great deal of uh, worship to ourselves and focus on ourselves. And, and Jesus is unfortunately oftentimes at number two. In this argument, the Jews think that Abraham is greater than Jesus. But Jesus is actually greater. And you know, in the argument of our life, as we work our way through life, Jesus is greater than we. He is far greater than we. But that process, that argument, is kind of still ongoing sometimes. And it's our flesh, and it's the world, and it's Satan, and it's somewhat just this life where we learn over time to truly put Jesus where he is, where he belongs, where he is, but see him where he is, right? The I am, the, great, the greatest of all, and the Savior, the King, the Lord, the Ruler. This is Jesus, our Lord. And so I urge you today to, to consider, is Jesus a Lord of my life? And I don't mean Savior of my soul, I mean Lord of my life. And this is where the concept of, of holding up Jesus for who he is is so important. He is the I am. He is the one who brings freedom from sin. He is the way and the truth and the life. And that fact doesn't change, but we change based on that fact. And our lives change as we hold that. I, I want to ask the question today, they argue with Jesus, and we kind of shake our heads and say, what fools? What a fool to argue with Jesus. Of course he's going to win. And what I ask you today is, do you argue with Jesus? Do you ever argue with the Lord? We sometimes do. In our own sort of ways. When the Lord kind of presses on something and says, you shouldn't do that. When the Lord kind of pushes and says, have you... Uh, th this is not a good plan. Uh, this is not the right way to go about this. Or whatever it might be, when the Lord presses, when, when the Word of God speaks to us, or the Spirit moves and says, this isn't okay, sometimes we activate our little inner lawyer, and we start dialoguing and say, oh, but it is fine because of this, this, and this. And can I just remind us that we're just as foolish as those Jews to argue with Jesus. Because Jesus is always going to win the argument sooner or later. Sooner or later. And for all of our benefit, it would be best if he would win his argument sooner. If he would win them today. And if we would just bow our knee and say, you know what, Lord, you're right. Whatever it is, um, 
I don't care what other people are doing or whatever else, but if you're telling me to do this, I'll do it, Lord. If you're saying I need to change my thinking or change my job or change this or, or remain or do or what it be, whatever it might be, you're right, Lord. I hope you'll yield to the Lordship of Christ today because He is the I Am. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Briefly in the message, we talked about how Christ is the answer to death, how He is the solution for our our death, and He's the one that forgives and cleanses. And I just want to ask, if you're here and you would say, I know that I've received Christ, I know I've, I've been saved, and, and He's my Savior, and um, I don't have any doubts about that. I'm ready to meet the Lord if death should come. If that's you, would you raise your hand and just say, I know that I'm saved, I know that I'm ready to meet the Lord, and I know that I'm His. Looking left, looking right. Okay. All right. Well, if you're here and you have questions about that, please reach out and say something. Um, we want to help you know Christ. Um, most people raise their hand, but we want to make sure you, you know that, and we are available to talk about that. Lastly, for the believer, if you've been having an argument with the Lord, let me just encourage you to humbly say yes, Lord, to whatever it may be, if it's big or small, if it's ongoing or new, whatever sort of argument you may have with the Lord, He is the I Am. And sooner or later, He will win that argument, and we will always be best served to turn to the Lord in submission. Let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You are the I Am, the One who is greater than Abraham. And Lord, in no way were You a Samaritan or demon-possessed. You are so opposite of that. Lord, You are the pure and perfect Son of God. And I pray that we as your people will remember your greatness, that we will indeed put you first in our hearts, not just categorically and positionally, but Lord, practically. Help me, dear God, to submit my life to your lordship. Help us as a church to be yielded to you, to follow you and to obey you. And we need that grace to continually hold you up in our hearts and to remember your greatness. Help us, I pray. We love you today. Do your good work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet together.